Welcome to CCC's podcast series. I'm Christopher Keneally for Velocity of Content. It's Friday, July 21st, 2023. Today, as we do each week, we check in with Publishers Weekly on news for the world of books and publishing. Andrew Albanese, PW Senior Writer, joins me today from New York City. Welcome back to the program, Andrew. Hey there, Chris. This was a tough week for many in the publishing industry, Andrew, with news breaking of layoffs at Penguin Random House. We also learned about a raft of well-known editors who are departing. I agree. A very tough week in the publishing industry and a jarring one at that with you know some of the employees who have accepted Penguin Random House's buyouts beginning to come out. And there was an announcement to staff uh, from Penguin Random House CEO, uh, Niar Melavia, confirming that the long-rumored layoffs about to hit the house are indeed happening. Uh, on Monday, the Associated Press was first to report that some veteran editors, uh, Ann Close and Jonathan Siegel and Vicki Wilson, had taken buyouts. That was followed up by New York Magazine, which had its own reporting and named Viking editors uh, Wendy Wolf and Rick Cott and Paul Slovak also among the departing, taking the voluntary buyout offers from Penguin Random House. Wolf has been at Viking since 1994. Cott's been there for decades, and Paul Slovak has been there since the late 80s, because I was there with Paul Slovak in uh, 1989, 1990. And Paul's really been a jack-of-all-trades for Vikings uh, over the last four decades. A quick story here, and I've always been a really big fan of Paul Slovak because he's just a really nice person. And when I was an assistant editor at Dutton, we were across the hall from Viking. This is in the early 90s, probably 92 and Paul and David Stanford, who is an editor there at the time, and David's assistant, my friend Roger Devine, invited me to spend the day with one of their authors, the great novelist Ken Kesey. Kesey was in town to do a reading at the Central Park Summer Stage, and I believe he was there to finish up edits with David Stanford on his novel Sailor Song. And I was a big Ken Kesey fan, and they knew this. And there I was suddenly, all of 24 years old, sitting in a hotel room in a circle with my publishing friends, with Ken Kesey, his wife, Faye, and his son, Zane. Uh, and, and I thought, here I am making $18,000 a year, mind you, in New York City, thinking that I just couldn't believe how awesome my life was. Uh, after the reading, which was amazing, uh, everyone was you know, getting ready to go out for a late dinner. And I was about to say goodbye and thanks. And Paul Slovak was like, uh-uh, you're coming with us. And I sat and had this long <laughs> dinner next to Ken Kesey in this restaurant in New York City. And I just could not have been happier. And it's that kind of perk and it's that kind of mentorship and that kind of joy in books and authors and what they mean to us that really sustains the publishing industry. Lord knows it isn't the, the pay. It's really the lifeblood of publishing. And, you know, I don't know if publishing is like that for young people anymore. I, I wonder. And I think that's what is part of what makes the bloodletting that we heard about this week and the departure of these great veteran editors, such a jarring headline. Also among those reported to be exiting is Knopf managing editor Kathy Horrigan, who worked with Pulitzer Prize winning biographer Robert Caro on all of his books, Back to the Power Broker, as well as head of publicity Nicholas Latimer and editor Shelley Wanger. Yeah, I mean, it, it can't be easy, right? I mean, it's not an easy moment, you know, exacerbated, I think, by the fact that all of these people are leaving and no one's really been in the office for the last three years. I mean, we all left the office, right? We weathered this crazy pandemic. We saw record sales in the industry for the last two years. And now there's just this stark 
reality settling in to the publishing industry. And and not just for Penguin Random House. I think they're easy to single out because they are the biggest by far. So their layoffs are the biggest so far. And they were, of course, you know, smacked down by the Department of Justice in their bid to get bigger to acquire Simon Schuster last year. Uh, HarperCollins has had layoffs, right? They just announced the closure of their imprint, Inkyard Press, this week as well. And Hachette, I believe, has offered buyouts. And indie distributor IPG also laid off nine employees this week. And yeah, here's the thing about all this that's going on now is that these layoffs, you know, layoffs happen in publishing every once in a while. Uh, they happen in all industries, I think, every once in a while. But these layoffs and these buyouts and all these departures, this moment in the publishing industry, it feels different. Now, Penguin Random House sources previously told PW that 49% of those eligible for the buyouts that were offered had taken them. Now, to be eligible, employees had to be 60 years old and have worked at Penguin Random House for 15 years or more. And, you know, we understand that Penguin Random House's buyouts are pretty generous by industry standards, but 49% is a really high number to take buyouts. And it wasn't high enough, obviously, uh, because more people are being actually laid off. So, but what this tells me, the fact that there is such a high number of people taking these buyouts is that some people who probably would have loved to die with their publishing boots on, right, to stay and work forever, and were probably doing a great job and could have stayed and worked longer, that they were kind of ready to leave. And this, to me, portends, I think, a broader cultural shift about to hit the publishing industry. And look, we have to say it. Publishing is primed for a culture shift. Don't get me wrong. I, I'm not suggesting that all these buyouts and layoffs are you know, clearing dead wood because it's clear that a lot of great talent is being let go here and people's careers are taking turns and uh, people are sad to see their colleagues go. What I am saying is that, you know, this is part of the COVID-19 pandemic, the aftermath, right? The COVID-19 pandemic changed the world, obviously, and the publishing world with it. There's just simply no going back to the old normal and getting to the new normal, a new normal we really need to get to, was never going to be easy. It was never going to be, okay, COVID's over, let's throw the doors open and all get back to business as usual. And I think we all knew that deep down. The last two years of you know fantastic book sales may have covered that up a bit, but here we are. The, the pandemic has exposed so many areas uh, in the world and in our industry where we are commanded to do better. And so many things that really have to change and change is never easy. But this moment of change in the business, I think any observer will tell you this week that it's going to require so much more than just an economic patch over or layoffs, right? There's, there's going to be an opportunity for publishing to do a bigger redo than just, you know, how big their staff should be. And I feel like we're starting to see the beginning of that here. Now, that said, a huge part of these layoffs obviously is economic. In his note to staff, Penguin Random House CEO Nier Malavia said that halfway through 2023, the growth in the industry that we've seen for the last couple of years is being offset by costs across the board, including inflation, and that publishing leaders expect these increases and the inflation to continue. Malavia is new to the job. He took over from Marcus Doley. He said this was the hardest decision he's ever had to make as a leader, and what a tough decision to have to make in your you know first years on the job. And I think the subtext here, too, from his comments is that this tough moment may not be over. There may be more to come. Also, I think it's important to note that not everyone who lost their job or took a buyout here was, you know, some kind of publishing legend or well-regarded editor 
all departments are being hit, not just editorial, marketing, and publicity, and distribution, and sales. And, you know, and the layoffs for the younger staff are extremely unfortunate because there are plenty of great people. I heard a few names last night that I'm not at liberty to share who had the requisite 15 years, for example, but were under 60 and didn't get the buyout offer and instead are just being laid off. Now, I'm hoping many of these employees, and I'm sure many of them will find their way back to the book business because there's a lot of talents here, whether that's at Indies or at other big five or in startups. But, you know, it's, it's important to say that while all the headlines and all the copy out there this week is really about some of these legendary big names who are leaving the business, uh, the big hit for the industry, too, is that there's a lot of younger talent that, that's being shown the door as well. For 2023 so far, book sales are trending flat year over year, which once upon a time was considered good news in this business. Not so much anymore, Andrew. Yeah, the publishing houses for a long time, you know, have very much held the, you know, flat as the new up business mantra. But I think you're right. No more. Uh, in 2023, amid you know these lingering economic uh, indicators, the uncertainty, the inflation, the shipping and supply issues that haven't completely gone away, though we're managing them a little bit better. You know, I think now that flat appears to be very much the new down, I'm afraid. And yes, we have the latest numbers to show that because they are, well, mostly flat. Uh, actually, the AP's numbers for May were actually up slightly for adult trade sales, where I think adult sales were around 426 million versus 403 million last year. So a good month in May. It was a tough month in April. Uh, so for the first five months of the year, AAP actually has sales up, but very slightly for adult trade books, uh, but not enough to make up for inflated costs. It seems at least by these lay judging by these layoffs and what many publishing leaders fear may be softening consumer spending on books for the coming months. Uh, a little bit of a different story. MPD Bookscan has the first six months of the year down. They have their data for the first six months, and I think they have the industry at about 3% down for the year so far. Of course, that's still about 13% over where we finished in 2019, which was the last pre-pandemic year. But this is something we've talked about on the show in the past. And the question, of course, again, I'll raise it again here, is how much of that excess growth from the pandemic are publishers going to give back? And if you take a conservative number for growth uh, for the publishing industry in normal years, not counting the pandemic, normally 2%, right? If you say, if you get 2% growth in the publishing industry, that's a pretty good year. That's more in line, at least, with what publishing does in a normal year. But if you take that number since 2019, without the pandemic, we might have seen growth for the industry in the 8% to 9% range uh, for that four year period. Well, we're at 13% for that four-year period from 2019 to 2023. So we're still about 4 or 5% ahead of the game. But given where inflation and costs and softening demand may be going, I, again, I think the question is whether the book business created enough new readers to consolidate and keep some of that excess margin we got from the last two years or whether we just sold more books to people working from home and the combination of going back to the office and inflation is going to start clawing that margin back. Also, in this climate of book bans and attacks on the freedom to read and new laws in some states threatening that, you really have to wonder how this is all going to impact readers. And the fact is, we just don't really know yet. Clearly, however, judging from the layoffs, publishers are anxious. And, you know, given the job cuts that we've seen, they're retooling. 
But I think the Circana numbers also, uh, the former MPD book scan, now known as Circana, their numbers also offer, I think, a glimmer of hope. And that's that adult fiction, which has been growing, even amid these down sales numbers, are continuing to grow up 4% for the first half of 2023. And I take that as a sign having new fiction readers, having more that we have new fiction readers, that this 4% represents that we, you know, whether it's book talk or whatever, that we do have more actual consumers for books in the marketplace. That's my take anyway. It's a ray of optimism and a pretty bleak time. Last week, Andrew, you noted in your Week in Libraries column for PW that the Daily Montana online news service reported the Montana State Library Commission voted to withdraw from the American Library Association. All of this over a tweet from Emily Drabinsky, the new American Library Association president. What's this all about? Yeah, it's really quite a story. So, And it's pure political theater. And frankly, I think it's gross governmental malpractice. So, but let me back up here, get my opinion ahead of the facts. (laughs) You know, here's what happened. The ALA president is elected for one-year positions. You know, we've talked about the ALA presidents quite a bit on this program over the years. And it's mostly a spokesperson job. I don't mean to diminish it. There's some responsibilities, but it's not a job with any real power. The position is elected, of course. And Emily Drabinsky, who's an academic librarian here in New York, won that election way back in March of 2022. The ALA holds its elections well ahead of time. So, you know, 17 or so months ago, right? And the fact that she won was kind of a surprise because academic librarians aren't often elected ALA president. They are, but just not in numbers as public librarians are. And in celebrating her victory, she tweeted about how happy she was and how surprised that a this is what she tweeted, a Marxist lesbian could be elected to the ALA presidency. And she wrote, gee, my mom is really proud of me, right? Well, 17 months or so later, the library commissioners in Montana, uh, very right wing, I would say here, clearly influenced by some, you know, some trolls in the mix, took issue with that tweet, uh, which has since been deleted. But, you know, really, you know, that deleted tweet, you know, that's all this is based on. A motion was made based solely on that tweet that I've only made and deleted some 17 months ago that, you know, the the library commission could not support ALA membership. And and here's the kicker. They told the ALA in their letter, this is the Montana library commission that pulled out their membership, that their oath of office, I'm quoting from their letter to ALA here, their oath of office and resulting duty to the constitution forbid association with an organization led by a Marxist. All of this is just utter nonsense. And, you know, I shudder to even try to engage with the facts about this, but but I guess we have to a little bit. And here's the truth. ALA is not led by the ALA president, right? There's an executive director, a committee, ALA council. All of these people consult to make decisions. Emily Drabinsky, any ALA president in this job, is mostly in an honorary role. But even if the president does have a public-facing role, Nothing in any state constitution would forbid association with anyone based on their political beliefs or their sexuality, because that would be blatantly against the U.S. Constitution. And it's just wrong. Um, So I'll note here that these commissioners are apparently fine associating with an insurrectionist that tried to overturn a free and fair election. But a librarian who once tweeted something a little cheeky is a grave threat to, to the state now. It just does not compute. Meanwhile, the ALA, which supports uh, Montana libraries, 
Uh, and more importantly, Montana Library users with vital resources every year is now out of the picture. So this is really just a political stunt done by these Montana Library commissioners. And the net effect of this is going to hurt Montana Library users. And for what? It's really just a travesty that people who were elected to serve can do this sort of thing. And really, you know, we have to do better. It, it's outrageous. And I guess one final note here is that ALA did issue a response to all this. And in a sign of what I can only assume is, you know, hoping not to get dragged into some bigger political fight, they pointed out all the things in this letter that Montana was going to be losing by, you know, severing its association, association with the ALA. And it's a lot. And, you know, it's important to point those things out. But in their letter, somehow, they forgot to mention Emily Drabinsky's name or to defend her in any way. And my question is how? You know, you can't find a sentence to say that you support Emily Drabinsky and what's happening here is wrong. You know, I get maybe ALA is working back channels to try to resolve this and wanted to avoid being further targeted. I don't know, but let's be honest. The attack on Emily is the point here. This is not really about ALA. It's about right and wrong. And this kind of attack is wrong and it really should not be allowed to stand unconfronted. So I don't really know what else to say about that. I guess what I can say is that I got to speak to Emily Drabinsky for the first time this summer. We did an interview together and she's amazing. She's an accomplished, whip smart, dedicated, outstanding librarian and a gracious, kind person. The library community is lucky to have her serving the profession in this role. And she deserves our gratitude and our support. And she deserves us having her back. And for all that she is doing on behalf of libraries, she certainly has my support. Andrew Albanese, Publishers Weekly Senior Writer, thanks for joining me on the program with your reporting and editorial analysis. My pleasure, as always. Coming up on the program, TikTok has already made the fortunes of many authors, particularly in trade book publishing and especially for the romance genre. Mark Gottlieb with Trident Media Group believes the video sharing platform is also having an impact on other publishing markets, including business books. I think even though while TikTok is sort of primarily known for more so it's like entertainment oriented content, it has definitely a growing community of, of, of business professionals and entrepreneurs who kind of share their like their tips, their insights, their recommendations as it relates to the business world. TikTok's ability to present information in these kind of short or bite-sized engaging videos can make, you know, these kind of complex or otherwise difficult to understand, you know, business concepts a lot more like accessible or easily digestible to a broader audience. So business authors and, and experts can really actually leverage TikTok to promote their books. Um, they can share a lot of the key takeaways, you know, engage with readers and thereby, you know, potentially expand their reach and influence. And so the platforms, again, algorithm-driven content discovery can help business books gain visibility and reach new audiences and then thereby contributing to their success in the publishing market. So it serves two factors, uh, discovery in terms of pre-existing business books, but also people who could potentially be writing business books. A TikTok challenge for publishing next on Velocity of Content. That's all for now. Our producer is Jeremy Brisky of Burst Marketing. You can subscribe to the program wherever you go for podcasts, and please do follow us on Twitter and on Facebook. You can also find Velocity of Content on YouTube as part of the CCC channel. I'm Christopher Keneally. Thanks for listening. 